John chapter 13, and we're, we're going to be focusing actually on 12 through 17, but we're going to read starting in verses 1 to get the context of this magisterial passage. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now we're not going to go into that text, but that, that is wonderful. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so that means among a bunch of other things, that Jesus does not get weary of believers. He loves to keep going. It's wonderful. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never so you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and head. And Jesus said to him, he who needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You may be seated. Lately, back in John 13, I have been looking at the big emphasis of Scripture, and I've been asking questions about what we're to be about as a church, what I'm to be about in my own personal life, and I'm trying to find what does the Bible emphasize over and over again. And that has been my burden in Ephesians chapter 4, which is kind of a scattered series, but a series nonetheless, of this idea that there would be no barriers between Christians and how much that comes up in the Bible how much it comes up, how vital and essential relationships are to Christianity, how central the whole thing is, that time and time again, the writers of the New Testament and even Christ himself come back to this emphasis that when you want to talk about Christianity, 
the first place that it impacts is how you interact with other people and how you think about and prioritize those relationships. And it's pretty incredible how central this is in the New Testament and the thinking of the New Testament. And it's why that First John can say, if you want to know if somebody's a Christian, just watch the way that they treat other people, especially other believers. That's pretty incredible if you think about it. He doesn't go into how much time they spend in prayer or how much of the Bible he can, they can quote. He has a few things that he says, but one of the main things is we know we have passed from darkness to light because we love the brethren. It's really incredible. It's an emphasis of Scripture that he can base a profession of faith and know what you are about by watching the way you interact with other people. It comes up again. It's pretty incredible. And it's why Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 7, In everything, therefore, treat, uh, let's see, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. There's a lot of things back here in the Old Testament and a lot of things that can be said, but he says this. This is on the authority of Jesus Christ. The summary of the law and the prophets. You want to know what the Old Testament is about? Treat others the way that you would like to be treated. More can be said there, but we need to let that emphasis land on us. It's very significant. And I can remember as a younger Christian... One of my favorite articles that I got the most encouragement from was an article about that if you're really going to go all out for Christ, if you're really going to be a radical disciple, you're probably going to end up being alone most of the time. And that was kind of the whole premise of the article. And as I'm starting to read through the New Testament now that I've been in the faith for a few years and being around other men and women who understand the New Testament, and seeing passages like John 13, which cannot be overestimated as far as how central they are to Christianity, I'm getting very uncomfortable with that emphasis. That the radical Christian life means that you live on such a higher plane that people can't relate to you, and so you're kind of off over here, and the rest of the church is off over here. Now let me quickly say that I like part of the emphasis because what it's saying is be radical for God. Pray, read the Word, see how far you can grow in Christ's likeness. I guess just now what I'm seeing that when you grow in Christ's likeness, you grow in relationship with other people. And it affects the way that you think about other people. It affects the priority that you put on relationships. And it affects the way that you interact with them. I mean, think about verses like this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come present your offering. I mean, when I first read that, my initial reaction is, Lord, he has the problem. Like, I don't have the problem. I'm going to sit here and offer my offering. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go on with you. I'm going to sing praises and be in the Word. But that's not what Christ says. He says, if you know your brother has something against you, leave your offering. That tells us a lot about the priority of the New Testament regarding how we relate to people and how important that is to us. More needs to be said about this text in context. There's all kinds of situations that are the exception. 
But let's not do what the pros do with the abortion argument and try and build our whole case made around these exceptions. The rule is leave your offering because that relationship is more important. The essence of being like Jesus Christ is that you lay down your life for others. That is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? What did he do in the New Testament? He did all kinds of things, but one of the big things that he did, possibly the main thing, was that he laid down his life for other people. And if you want to follow Jesus and have any resemblance of a claim to what that means, that I am a Christian, then our lives have to reflect someone who has died to themselves, taken up a cross, and we're laying down our life for other people. Like I said, the tendency is to think about, Lord, they have the problem, not me. But that's the old way of thinking. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six and following says, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. There is a sense in the New Testament that we rise together and that we fall together and that we cannot afford to lose even one. And again, that gives us a sense of the priority of this, this emphasis in the New Testament. And as I've been thinking through this, I haven't been able to get John 13 off my mind. It was funny because when I went to start working on the sermon, I saw that I attempted to put together a sermon on this subject, this is how long it's been in my mind, back in, I think, 2013 or early 2014, and I gave up because I just felt I cannot do justice to this text. And let me quickly say, let me not, I don't want anybody to be unclear, I have not changed in that conviction. (laughs) I cannot do justice to this text. It's amazing. Think of what is going on here in this upper room discourse It's a special event. It's the night before Christ is going to die. And here is what is so significant about John chapter 13. The night before Jesus is going to die and he's going to leave for us some of the critical teachings of Christianity and what it's all about. I mean, think of it. The night before he's going to die, these are the last things that he's going to say to his disciples. These are going to be the words and the images ringing in their ears. What is it? Well, here's what's significant. He gave us many teachings, but he only left one example. And that is this in John chapter 13. This and what is happening here with Christ at the feet of the saints, serving them, getting under them to try and lift them up, the service of the saints. This is so essential that Christ was not content just to say it. He says it and he says, now let me show you what it looks like. He's not going to leave it just in words only. He's going to, he wants to show us what it means when you go low for other people. It's significant. He left us several teachings, teachings, but only one example. Because laying down your life for the saints is essential to Christianity. We follow a Savior who says in Mark 10, whoever wishes to become great among you, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. We don't even like that language. For even the Son of Man 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We follow a Savior who did not come to be served. That's not his mindset. His mindset is he came to serve and to give his life. And if we claim to follow Jesus, it better resemble that. It better resemble that. There needs to be more said about what it means to follow in Jesus. We need to talk about his prayer life. You want to talk about a prayer life? Luke, he often withdrew to lonely places to pray. We need to talk about his love for the word, quoting scripture, always going back to scripture. Satan hits him with a temptation, he goes back to scripture. We need to talk about his love for the loss and how he pursued for the loss, pursued the loss. So this is not all that can be said about Christianity, but surely it is one of the central elements. Surely it is something that is vital to the center of what it means to be a Christian. Because in the upper room, when Christ is about to leave the saints, he doesn't go over with a Bible study them, with them and show them how to you know, read the Bible. He did give them an example to pray back when, he's, when he um, gave the Lord's Prayer, but not in the upper room when he's about to leave. He wants an image burning in their mind of him with a water basin and a towel at the feet of of the saints. And when he gets done, he says, this is what Christianity is about. If you want to say you follow me, this is what this is about. Going low for the saints. Serving the saints. So he gives us a picture of humble service. And he not only leaves this example, but he cultivates it. And he does that specifically in John chapter, I mean, uh, John 13, 12 through 17. He wants to give them a reason and a foundation to go on year after year in this work. Because one thing that happens with this work is it's very easy to grow weary in it. It's very easy when you're dealing with people day after day and year after year, especially when it's the same people, it's very easy to get tired in this work. And you want to go do other things and you want to find other emphasis. You want to be out there and not having to deal with relationships, not having to deal with laying down your life for people who sometimes aren't going to understand it and they're not going to respond the right way and all sorts of things. And so what he does, he not only gives the example, but he gives us a strong foundation to keep our mind renewed so that every day we have fresh stores to lay down our life once again. So let's look at this. Starting in verse 12, it says this, it says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments again and reclined at the table, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So here's the first point. To persevere in humble service for the saints, we must remember the person and work of Christ. Did you get that? Did you get the contrast that he makes here in verses 13 and 14? 
If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet. It's very important to know who this is that is washing your feet. And it's important, not just for today in this message, but year after year after year, to be reminded of who this is that's talking. Who is this? We have a tendency to forget who it is on, that's on his knees with a towel. Well, if you read any of the Old Testament, you have met him before. For instance, in Isaiah 6, there are these, there's this scene that Isaiah has a vision of, and there's these mighty seraphs in heaven, the most majestic of creatures, and they are undone in the presence of God. It's crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And to give you a feel for how majestic these creatures are, when they shout, the foundation shakes. These are majestic creatures, and yet, in the presence and the glory of God, they are undone. And Isaiah catches just enough of a glimpse of this to cry, I am ruined. I am ruined. Because you are dealing with uncontested glory the most exalted of all beings, God himself. And when you come into the presence of that and you get a little feel for what that means, it overwhelms you. And there is not a, between grasshoppers to seraph, anything that can stand it. That's the type of glory that we're talking about. Here's the question. Who was he looking at? Who is Isaiah looking at? In Isaiah chapter 6, it's very significant that the very close, immediate context of John 13, we are told who he's looking at. Listen to this in John chapter 12, verses 37. But though he, this is talking about Jesus, had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, or perceive with their, perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I would heal them. Verse 41. Remember, we've been talking about Jesus. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Who is Isaiah looking at in Isaiah chapter 6? Who is it that the mightiest of creatures in all of the earth, these mighty seraphs, cannot even bear his presence? It is the Son of God. That's who he's looking at. He is looking at the Son of God, and he is standing there. In Isaiah chapter 6 is Isaiah and these seraphs in unshielded glory, and they cannot even bear it. The glory of the Son of God. That's who this is. Now think of this, a chapter later in John 13. There the Son of God is, at the feet of disciples, washing the feet of men like Peter, who would deny him, and Judas, who would betray him. What has happened? What compassion is this? What mercy is this? That the Son of God shows up, not to destroy everyone with His glory, but to get a towel and a basin full of water and wash dirt 
off of sinful humans. What has happened? Or as Paul says it, when he's trying to cultivate this very spirit in us, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, saying he didn't assert his rights. He had the glory. We see the glory. But he didn't assert his rights to that throne and that power and that way of being treated with all the creatures rightly at his feet. He didn't assert his rights to that. Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The first thing that we need to do to persevere in the humble service of the saints is to cultivate who Christ really is in our own minds. Because it's very easy just to be going on in life. You're just going to work. You're going to school, trying to make ends meet, and you're just so busy. It's very easy to lose a sense of the glory of Jesus. And when you lose that sense of glory, when he becomes just another religious figure, we'd never put it that way, but it's easy in the busyness of life when Jesus is just kind of one among many things out there, nothing's going to go right. Because the starting point of Christianity is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we must have this renewed in our mind. We must cultivate these thoughts that the one that Isaiah is looking at in Isaiah chapter 6, seraphs can't even stand before. And yet, a few hundred years later, we find him being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God is hanging, suspended between heaven and earth on behalf of wicked sinners. What love is this? What compassion is this? What mercy is this? Who is this that would love rebellious sinners to do this? Do you realize that he forever changed the mode of his existence for the plan that saved your life? He took on flesh. He will forever be in flesh. There will never be a time that Christ is not doesn't have a physical body. He altered the mode of his existence for sinners. And if we're going to go on year after year serving sinners, then we're going to have to remember what Jesus did. Number two, to persevere in the humble service of the saints, we need to remember that he had to wash our feet also. That's important. If you're going to persevere in the humble service of the saints, you need to remember that you needed your feet washed too. And that's very important. Notice this again as we read 13 and 14. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, your feet, there are not a lot of times in the Bible when the Bible invites you to think about yourself. As a matter of fact, most of what we do as Christians is trying to encourage one another to stop thinking about yourself. Like we, I mean, we come up with illustrations, we have word pictures, 
We give verses to each other to just try and get you to stop thinking about yourself. And a lot of you do that to me, and I love it, and I need it desperately. But this is one of the few times in the Bible when the Bible actually invites you to think about yourself. He invites you to think about your feet and the fact that you had to be washed also. What generally happens in our mind is we're going through life, our minds aren't being renewed, and we run in, we encounter other people. And if we encounter other people, if we forget that we had sin to be dealt with too, and that our sin was just as bad, that Christ had to wash us also, we're not going to handle people the way that we need to handle people. So it's not only important to remember who Christ is, it's important to remember who we were and the state in which he found us. Romans chapter 3, I'll just read this as it sums this up nicely. Starting in verse 9, it says this. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Okay, so that's, that's what we're dealing with here. That's what we're dealing with here. Because we're going to be bumping into each other all the time. And implied in John chapter 13 is the fact that you're not just going to be dumping, bumping into each other with their problems. You're going to be bumping into each other with your sin. Because that's kind of the analogy with that, what he's washing off. It symbolizes cleansing and what happened when Christ saved us. Justification and regeneration and then washing of the feet, ongoing sanctification. And we need our minds renewed. What then are we better than they? Not at all. You need to have that in your mind. When you run into other people's sin and when the way that you deal with people's sin, when you're confronting them and when you see sin, you need this verse in your mind that says, are we better than they? Not at all. Because if you don't have that mindset, you're not going to approach the situation that you, the way that you need to. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews, the religious people, and Greeks, non-religious people, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is on their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. When Christ came to die on the cross for sinners, He came to die for enemies. Every single one of us that has believed or will come to believe. And it says in Romans, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And it does not matter if when Christ found you, you had a heroin needle in your arm and you were sleeping under a bridge, or if you grew up a nice church kid and a twofold son of hell, it does not matter. You were under sin, and it took the death of the Son of God to save you, no less.
if we want to persevere in serving the saints year after year, one of the things that's going to need to be in the forefront of our minds is I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't have the privilege of washing the feet of the saints. I shouldn't be, have the privilege of getting up under that brother or getting up under that sister, even with the sin that they're dealing with, and try and lift them up. If you lose sight of that, it will all be wrong. It will all be wrong. So if we're to persevere in the humble service of the saints, we need to remember who the Lord is and remember what He did. And we need to remember that we had to get our feet washed too. Here's a few applications. These are obvious, but I'll state them anyway. Number one, renew your mind regarding the person and work of Christ. It's, man, this whole deal of going back to the gospel and that you need to be grounded in the gospel, I pray it doesn't become cliche, like a Hallmark card that we read. Be grounded in the gospel. It is so true because that's the way that the Bible handles this situation. For instance, in 1 John 4.10, he says this. He says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What is he saying? Remember who Jesus is, the Lord of glory. Remember what he had to do. He had to come and propitiate your sin. Propitiation is a wrath-bearing sacrifice. That's what it took to save you. It took a wrath-bearing sacrifice from none other than the Son of God himself. The Lord of glory had to get off that throne in Isaiah chapter 6 and be born in a manger and become obedient to death, even death on a cross, to save your soul. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or you got saved years later with nothing to do with church. It took propitiation to save you. That's what John's saying. And he's saying, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That will sustain you year after year after year, and it will help you deal rightly with people. We need to renew our mind regarding the person and work of Christ. Number two, here's another application. Review your roles. And your role as a father, and your role as a wife, and your role as a worker, and your role as a son or daughter, do you have the mindset of a servant? It is so essential. Do you have a mindset of getting beneath people to serve, him, to serve them? Because to follow Jesus means that you don't just have the mindset to get ahead of them or to get above them. More can be said in this, but let's let the Bible emphasis land on us. In all of our roles, as a father, as a child, as a worker, as a member of the church, God help us to have our reflex be, I am a servant. I'm here to get up under these people to see if I can lift them up. I am here just like Jesus did for me when he got down in my mess I'm here to get down in their mess and to see if I can help them out. Because that's what happened to me. That's the way that God loved me. So think through your roles, all of your roles in life, what you do. Do you have the mindset of a servant in those roles? The third and final application. 
don't hate sin in others like yours was any better. Don't hate sin in others like yours was any better. Like I said earlier, that's implied in John 13 and what's happening here because the symbol of dirt is the symbol of sin. And what he does in that discourse up there with Peter, he's talking about the initial washing. He's talking about salvation, that Jesus came and washed you. So it's implied in John chapter 13 that when you're dealing with people, their sin's going to come out. And if you hate that sin, like you've never had anything to do with sin, you're going to handle them wrongly. And you may be thinking, surely, surely this doesn't matter. I mean, it's hard enough just to get people to hate sin, period. So surely if you can get someone to hate sin in any form, that would be far desirable than anything else. The Bible says no. The Bible says that's not true. Where does it say it? It says it in John chapter 8. Very familiar story, but very powerful. Where Jesus is dealing with this woman that's caught in adultery. And these Pharisees bring this woman and they throw her before Jesus. And there she is. She's guilty. They caught her in the act. This is not like we need more evidence. She's not arguing. Like everybody knows it. She is guilty. And they are demanding justice. Man, they want justice for this woman. They want to catch Jesus, but they love justice. They want justice to happen. And what does Jesus say that just throws us for theological loops? What does he say? He says... He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Isn't that incredible? It's not okay just to hate sin in any form. It's not okay to hate sin like what he says. You're without sin. He who is without sin. You can't hate sin like you're without sin. And if you do, you're going to be dragging people up all the time and wanting justice. You can't hate sin like that. You have to hate sin like somebody who knows what it is to have your own sins forgiven. You know that your crimes against God required no less than the death of the Son of God. And when you have that in your mind and you know I have been forgiven of sins that would have sunk my soul to hell for all eternity, you'll still hate the sin in other believers, but you'll handle it so differently. You won't handle it like somebody who is without sin. It's so important. And so as we interact with each other, let's remember this priority. Remember the priority. There's more to be said about the Christian life, but certainly we can say that it is significant that in John 13, in the upper room discourse, Jesus left many teachings, but one example. And it's of laying down your life for other people. And the way that that will be sustained year after year, to persevere in humble service for the saints, remember the person and work of Christ. Have your mind renewed and who exactly that is that's holding that towel. And secondly, to persevere in this humble service of the saints, remember... He had to wash you too. You were in the same line as that saint sitting next to you. He had to die for us all. Let's pray. Lord, I think of that that song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Lord, we thank you for this place. 
I thank you for the example, Lord, of this place. The very reason I even started studying this was coming up here and seeing how the saints loved each other. So, God, I thank you for that. And we just pray that you would bless us and keep us and make your face shine upon us. Help our minds to be renewed for the glory of Christ. Help us to remember the well that you dug us out of. Help us to lay down our life for one another. Lord, would you show us more of what that means? Would you help us, Lord? Show us ways that we can do that with one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.